Thank you, Rob. Hi, I'm Bill, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Bill. And um, I'm sober today through the grace of God and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and an awful lot of people who taught me how to stay away from one drink one day at a time. And for that, I'll be forever grateful. And my sobriety date is April 8th, 1962. And for that, I'll also be forever grateful. I almost didn't make this meeting this afternoon. I uh, had a uh, difficulty. Um, many of you uh, were here this morning, I think, and heard my wife speak. And um, she apologized to me from the podium <coughs> for something. Um, so I had to run off to a doctor to find out whether I was hallucinating or not. <laughs> so, uh, <coughs> but, um, No, he said I was fine. <laughs> but then again, he was drinking martinis, so I'm not sure. You know? <laughs> I want to thank Al-Anon, and I, I mean this sincerely. I want to thank Al-Anon for letting us in Alcoholics Anonymous be part of your meeting and uh, for letting me share my story um, of my bout with, uh, with the disease of alcoholism, uh, which... Um, um, I also uh, brought on other people. You know, every alcoholic, they say, affects at least five to seven other people. And um, there are about 40 million alcoholics in the United States alone, according to the AMA and the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Abuse, which means there have got to be over 200 people in this country alone affected in some way by the disease of alcoholism. It's, it's, an, it's an enormous thing. But yet we only have two and a half million people in Alcoholics Anonymous and less than a million in Alco in Al-Anon. What are we doing wrong? Why aren't there more? Um, I don't have the answer to that, but I am very, very grateful that God gave me this gift, and uh, the second time around I was able to hold on to it. So I want to thank Al-Anon, as I say, and I also want to thank the committee for inviting Bernard at night to speak. Um, you know, it's, it's um, well, I also want to thank, let me just say this, it's really enjoyable, as you know, to be with so many friends on these occasions, and uh, always being with Juanita and Bob, I just, I just love their company, and our friend Les from Indianapolis, and my dear friend Michigan Dick from Kentucky, you figured that one out, <laughs> and his lovely wife Pat. And I want to thank Sue, who was so helpful to me. We had many phone conversations. We're, pen, we're telephone pals now. And my host, Rob, you've made this very, very comfortable. And, uh, and like Linda said last night, uh, you've been so generous. The, uh, the, the goodie bags that we had in our room when we arrived made me feel goody. <laughs> um, so, so, so I thank you. And as I was about to say before, it's, it's always and very in, quite an experience for me to listen to my wife share. Um, the very first time I heard her share was at a, an Al-Anon anniversary meeting in New York. And I wanted to run out of the room. I had a di very difficult time. Um, you see, I always knew intellectually when I got sober um, 
some of the devastating things that my disease and me brought into her life. But for some reason or other, I never let it get from here to here. And I think most alcoholics are in that category in the beginning. And until we let it get from here to here, I don't think we have much of a chance of finding real true sobriety. And so that, uh, that evening in New York, when she was in Yonkers, New York, and she told her story, I was trying to hide the tears running down my face because I was filled with all kinds of pain, knowing from the person I did it to what I did. So it is always still a very, very emotional experience when I hear Bernadette talk, but um, um, I'm able to handle it better now because I've been so damn good to her since, you know? <laughs> Uh, it's called making amends I remember saying to my sponsor once we were married eight and a half years uh, before I sobered up and then when I was sober eight and a half years I said to my sponsor I'm even now right (laughs) no more amends right he said no I ain't right I said well how much longer he says, well, until God takes you from the face of the earth. <laughs> and he reminded me that, that uh, you know, I was going to continue to do stuff, you know, because I'm more of an alcoholic this afternoon than I was when I married Bernadette, than I was when I joined Alcoholics Anonymous, because this is a progressive disease. It continues to grow. And... The disease of alcoholism is a spiritual ailment which manifests itself through our character defects and shortcomings, which Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob finally figured out. It took me a while to accept that. I thought if I could stop drinking, man, everything would be fine. (laughs) No, I stopped drinking and everything wasn't fine. It wasn't fine for a long time, and sometimes it's not fine now because I still have my character defects and shortcomings. Of course, Bernadette doesn't have any. Um, I understand when you join Al-Anon, you get sort of like a plenary indulgence, you know? It washes it all away, you know? Um, But anyway, anyway, it's... it's, uh, Linda, you did say I could have fun, right, Linda? Thank you, thank you. I really enjoyed Linda's talk, and... um, We have many mutual friends in Nashville, Tennessee, because Bernadette and I lived in Nashville for six years. And I I was with Diane this afternoon, and she's going to be speaking tomorrow morning. And we have many mutual friends, and it's just, just, man alive, this this fellowship. The longer I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous, the more I don't get it. I mean, it's just so overwhelming, the kind of life that God gives us through this program, through this fellowship, through these 12 Steps. It's incredible, you know. And if those of you who are sitting here today and don't think you've got it, you got it. You got it. All you just got to do is make it come alive because this is a program of miracles. And, uh, but I had no idea of any of this when I was growing up. I mean, I had, no, I had no idea what alcoholism was. And yet I grew up in an alcoholic home. My father was an alcoholic. Five of his six brothers died of alcoholism. It was on both sides of the family. Um, My father's father was an alcoholic. He was a German baker. And uh, he used to make um, um, uh, homemade brew and strain it through a felt hat. (laughs) 
Yeah. I guess that's why I used to love to wear felt hats. I don't know. It's uh, right in the family. And on the other side, my mother's mother, Lizzie McClintock, was an alcoholic. Her husband, Archibald McClintock, was an alcoholic. I frequently say when you got the name Archibald McClintock, hell, you got to be an alcoholic. You know? <laughs> but I never heard anybody in my family ever call anybody an alcoholic. That name was reserved for the poor guy on the Bowery, sitting on the curb picking lint out of his navel, you know? We'd drive by and somebody would say, hey, there's an alcoholic, yet the guy that's driving the car is, th- is drunker than the guy sitting on the curb, you know? <laughs> but nobody, nobody. I mean, the day that I came home from, I used to go to my grandmother's house for lunch, because we lived far from school, and so lunchtime I'd go to my grandmother's house, because she lived like halfway in between. And my grandfather, Archibald McClintock, worked on the docks in New York, and he used to bring strange things home from the docks. The drunker he got, the stranger they were. (laughs) And one day I walked into my grandmother's apartment, and she's running around the place with a broom. And I was wondering why, and all of a sudden I look up, and there's a monkey (laughs) jumping from curtain to curtain to curtain, you know. And my grandfather was sitting in a chair laughing, drunk, he swear, laughing, and she's trying to catch this monkey with this broom, you know. And she turns to him and she says, once I get this monkey, goddammit, I'm getting you next. You know? <laughs> I had no idea that was alcoholism. I had no idea, you know. When in the middle of the night I'd be awakened, my sisters and my sisters and I, by these screams and yells and, and we'd jump out of bed and, and there was my mother chasing my father around the dining room table with a kitchen knife because he had come home drunk again, you know. And she's yelling at him to stop, stop, stop. Well, my father was drunk, but he wasn't stupid. He just kept running, you know. And I had no idea that that was alcoholism. You know, the day we took Uncle Willie to the hospital, I was 12 years old, and he had this big thing, you know, sticking out from his shirt, and it was the color of your blouse. And he had jaundice and a, a swollen liver, and he died four days later. I had no idea that was alcoholism. It was never spoken about in our family, and yet it was all, it was there, you know. And uh, so anyway, that's, the, that's where I grew up. I don't blame anything on that. I don't blame my disease on that. I don't blame anything on that. Because that's just the way it was, and I became the way I was. And, uh, I, I, but I left the house early. I was 13 years old. I thought I had a calling. You know, Bernadette talked this morning about she thought she wanted to be a nun. Well, I thought I wanted to be a priest. We, we, so we wound up in the same habit, did we? <laughs> oh, what is that's, yeah, that's terrible. I'm sorry. That's as bad as your joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, I, went, I was four years in a seminary, and then my spiritual director said to me one, one day, he said, William, I think someday you might make a wonderful father, but not in a year. <laughs> but that was long before I, he, he saw my character defects long before I saw them, you know. I now know from all of those experiences that I was, a, I was an alcoholic long before I picked up a drink, you know. But I had no idea. I had all those character defects, shortcomings, attitudes, you know. Craving for attention, yet having low self-esteem. Feeling uncomfortable in the crowd of more than two, you know. 
not thinking I was as good as. I was a good athlete, but I didn't think I was as good as. I was a damn good student, but I didn't think I was as good as. All that kind of stuff. And I was, but the one thing I was good at is I was good at dreaming. Man, I love to dream. That's what used to get me out of everything, you know. I mean, when there was fights and arguments in the house, I would walk up to Jamaica Bay and sit on a railing and overlook the water and watch the cars go by on the highway. Dream I was in one of those cars with that family going someplace nice, you know. And, uh, and I used to always love to write. I, 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 that was one of my big dreams, and I loved it. And, uh, and I've, been, I've been actually writing all of my life, and, and that got me out of myself. You know? So that's, that's the kind of person I was growing up. I, I had all these character defects. I had low self-esteem. And, and, and I didn't know how to live, you know, I, I just, you know, it's very uncomfortable around, when I came out of the seminary, it's very uncomfortable around girls for a while, for a while, <laughs> and uh, I got a job working for a New York City newspaper as a copy boy, and I was going to St. John's University finishing up my college education, and I, and I uncovered a story, which I don't have time to go into, but uh, it made the headlines of the paper the next day, and they made me a reporter. A police reporter to cover Brooklyn, and they put me on the lobster shift, which is midnight to 9 a.m. And in Brooklyn, that's when everything happens anyway. So I was, and I said to the city editor, Eddie Mahar, by the way, my city editor was also an alcoholic, but he didn't drink. The reason he stopped drinking is his wife threatened to leave him. Cardinal Spellman of New York threatened to fire him as the president of the Catholic Institute of the Press, and a managing editor threatened to, threatened to fire him as the city editor of the newspaper. So he stopped drinking. And I think some of us have known people who stopped drinking without Alcoholics Anonymous. He was the meanest, ornery, most profane human being I've ever met in my life, but a damn good city editor, don't get me wrong. He was very good at what he did. But he was the only man, he was so angry, he was the only man I knew that could string together 17 profane words and make a perfect English sentence, you know, you know, because he used it on me all the time, you know. So anyway, I said, uh, Mr. Mahar, what do I do when I go to Brooklyn? And he says, uh, look up the other reporters and they'll show you the ropes. I'm talking about 1951-52, and uh, back in those days there were 18 newspapers in the city of New York. Big, big, big newspaper town. Today there are two and a half. I won't tell you what the half is, except it's the New York Times. But anyway, um, uh, you know where I come from. So I went over to Brooklyn, and I walked up to the lieutenant on the desk at Brooklyn Police Headquarters, and I said, can you tell me where I can find another newspaper reporter? And he pointed across, across Flatbush Avenue, which is the main drag in Brooklyn, to the Edison Bar and Grill. And he said, you'll find some of them in there. Well, he was wrong. I found all of them in there, you know. <laughs> and they were all much older guys than me. I was 18 and a half years old, wet behind the ears, scared to death, didn't know what the hell I was doing. And uh, so the bartender introduced me to Charlie Feeney of the Daily Mirror. There was a Daily Mirror back then. And uh, Charlie said, what are you drinking, kid? I said, a hollow of Coke. He said, hell, you won't have a Coke. <laughs> so he got me a shot and a beer. And, uh, and then he told me what he did, you know, how he operated. You know, looked at the pre-slips, if something looked interesting, he called up the precinct, find out what's going on, go with the detectives. If it's really good, you go out. Well, and then he introduced me to Joey George of the Daily News, and Joey George bought me a drink, told me what he did. 
And then he introduced me to Charlie Mortimer of the New York Times. And Charlie bought me a drink, told me what he did. And I didn't realize, but they were having fun with the kid. They were passing me down the bar. <laughs> Somewhere, either a third or halfway down, and I'm not, this is, I'm not being mellow, this is what actually happened. I began to feel different. I began to feel good, comfortable. I began to relax. You know, in the beginning, I was uptight with all of these old veteran news guys around me, you know. But something began to happen. It was the magic elixir was beginning to work. It was the thing that I needed to find a way of life because I was so uptight. I mean, I just... And, um, and by the time I got down to the end of the bar, it was wonderful. I walked into the Edison Bar and Grill at, four, at midnight, a scared, uptight kid, and I walked out at 4 o'clock in the morning, a veteran newsman, <laughs> because that's what alcohol does to alcoholics. It makes them feel whole, at least all those that I know, and it certainly did it for this guy. It just filled a gap inside of me. And without realizing it, from that point on, I began to have a few drinks before I did almost anything. That's how I got ready. You know, before I'd go to work, I'd stop at the Edison Bar and Grill and have a few drinks. Then I'd call the city desk over in Manhattan and let them know I was checking into the shack in Brooklyn, and and off I would go. And uh, if I was going to go to a party, I had a few drinks before I went to the party, so I'd be ready to have a good time at the party. And if I wanted to call a girl to go out on a date, I'd have a few drinks to call her up and ask her to go out on a date. And she said, yes, I have a few more drinks to take her, you know. And that's the way my life began to go. So by the time I met this lovely, lovely lady called my wife. Um, she had no idea, and I had no idea, that I was an alcoholic. No idea that I was powerless over alcohol. No idea that once I took the first drink, I had a very difficult time not taking the second, the third, and the fourth. Um, but when you're young and, uh, and in fairly good shape, um, you can be a pretty, pretty productive individual and it takes a little bit of time for some alcoholics like myself to get totally, totally uh, wrapped into it. But it didn't take me long. Um, Bernadette, Bernadette shared how we met um, and, and, that, and the fact that, that we eloped. Um, I was sharing with, I think it was, was Dick or somebody earlier, you know, about why, why we eloped. Bernadette said she wanted why and... I know exactly why. Because when I saw Bernadette, I realized I could not live without her. I had never met anybody before in my life that I felt I could not live without. But with her, it was different. And um, I don't know if I knew what love was, but I knew that I couldn't live without her. And I met her um, the night that I broke off my engagement to another girl. Let me just quickly tell you, because it will describe for you the kind of person I was and can still be, uh, filled with oneself and uh, not caring too much about other people. I was engaged to this other girl. His name was, pa her name was Patty. 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 And uh, I got engaged to her because, well, I knew her brother very well. Her brother was a drinking buddy of mine. And one night we were drinking, and he says, would you like to meet my sister? I said, yeah, well, I'll meet your sister. So I met his sister, and um, as a matter of fact, I like Bobby more than I like Patty. But anyways, <laughs> not no no not that way. But um, um, uh, um, but my then my mother liked Patty, so everybody liked Patty. So 
So we got engaged. I don't even remember the truth is uh, we had an engagement party in, in Monaghan Saloon, but I don't remember much of it. You know, I was a, I was a pretty big, of a, much of a blackout drinker pretty early on. But anyway, we got engaged. And I knew the night we got engaged, I couldn't marry her because I didn't love her. As a matter of fact, I didn't want to spend that much time with her. I don't mean to, she was a nice girl, don't get me wrong, but I don't know why. I mean, it was a crazy thing to do, you know. And uh, But her father put $1,500 down on the hall for our, for our marriage. You know, that's a lot of money back then. Still is a lot of money today. Plus the fact that he was a police captain and he carried a big gun. And, uh, <laughs> and I don't know what the hell to do. So, uh, so, um, but I still had a relationship with God at that point. So I said a few prayers and God stepped in and took care of it. You know, God does take care of things, and sometimes in strange ways. And this way, he took care of this one in a kind of strange way, because um, we were invited to an afternoon wedding in New Jersey, and Patty said to me, now, don't drink, because when I pick you up, we'll go to New Jersey, and there'll be plenty to drink. Because she, she thought I drank too much. <laughs> and so I said, don't worry. So she picked me up. I was working at Manhattan Police Headquarters that day. It was a Saturday. And she picked me up about 10 o'clock in the morning, and I was three sheets to the wind. <laughs> And uh, she was very angry when I stumbled into the car next to her. And suddenly I noticed there was a girl sitting in the back seat, an absolutely gorgeous girl. And her name was Frances. And Frances was also engaged, but her boyfriend was over in Germany in the army, you know. And so she looked kind of lonely. <laughs> and, and I always thought it was a mortal sin for pretty girls to look lonely, you know. And uh, I didn't want her to feel lonely, so I started talking to her. How are you doing, Sue? And um, so by the time we got to New Jersey, Francis and I were pretty good friends. And, uh, and then in New Jersey, I found out that Francis liked to drink like, like, I, like I drank, you know. And so we drank and we danced and we drank and we danced. And all I remember is Francis pulling me onto the dance floor and my fiancé is screaming that, that means I was making a fool out of her. It was working. <laughs> and uh, the next thing I know, I'm in Queens, New York, no longer in New Jersey. I come out of a blackout in the middle of the dance hall in a big German dance hall. Bigger, bigger than this. And it was a big German band. Remember those oompa bands? Oompa, oompa, oompa. And they're playing over in the corner. And, and, and I'm in the middle of the floor with Francis. And there's a crowd circling around us, clapping their hands. And boy, it was really exciting. And, uh, I'm, but I'm trying to figure out where the hell I am. You know, you, right, Dick? You come out of blackouts in strange places, right? <laughs> and suddenly Francis takes off her jacket and she throws it up in the air. So I figure it's part of the dance. So I took off my jacket, I threw it up in the air. Yeah, yeah. And they're, cl- they're cl- clapping louder. So Frances takes off her blouse and she throws it up in the air. Wow. So I took off my shirt and tie, threw it up in the air, you know. More people clapping louder and louder. And suddenly she takes off her skirt and she's dancing around her to slip. So I drop my drawers, you know. <clears throat> and suddenly my engagement ring comes flying in over the crowd. <laughs> I don't know why, but she broke off the engagement, you know. <laughs> so anyway, and that's, that's, that's what I was like. I mean, it, it, it didn't, so what? You know, I'm a free man. I didn't think about her feelings, you know, what, what she was going through, the embarrassment and all that. Never, it never entered my mind. The selfishness and self-centeredness of alcoholics, you know, the, the, these are the character defects that, that all alcoholics that I've ever met have, you know. But anyway, I didn't know. What the hell I know? I was having a great time. I'm a free man. So I get to put my pants back on, and I go over to Gallagher's, you know. 
And as Bernadette shared this morning, she and her, her niece, Geraldine, by the way, Bernadette had three sisters who were older than my mother. Can you believe that? You know, she had 12, 11 sisters and one brother. By the way, her brother was a wonderful guy, but kind of, you know. Um, his name was Anthony, you know. And they grew up, 11 girls and one guy grew up in a house with one bathroom, you know. And, and I, could, I said to him one day, I said, what is it like, Anthony, growing up with 11 sisters? He said, well, to tell you the truth, I didn't know until I was 13 that I didn't have to sit down to pee, you know. So, and uh, it was, made, sen- made sense to me, you know. So, so anyway, I, I went up in Gallagher's, and, and Bernard is sitting there with Geraldine, and I go, eeny, meeny, miny, miny, and you, and you, you won. You won. Yeah, you won. Right. <laughs> um, of course, Bernadette thought that some marriages were made in heaven, but after us, she was wondering. Um, so we knew each other three and a half weeks. And, uh, and as I say, I, I, I just didn't want to let her out of my sight. I just, when I leave her, you know. But the one thing I would do is I would leave her. I would take her home, you know, like one or two o'clock in the morning, and leave her so that I would have another couple of hours to drink on my own. Of course, I couldn't drink like I'd like to drink with Bernadette. You know, I had to be a gentleman. I couldn't knock him down, you know. And because uh, I was the kind of guy in the bar, I'd order two or three drinks at, at one time, never order one at a time. Because it takes too long, for, but bart- the bartender's got to walk down there and then back to you, you know. And uh, by the time you've you got three glasses that are empty, you know. Anyway. Um, so anyway, uh, we, we eloped out to Maryland. We got married. And, uh, and, uh, and, and she's right. Um, uh, her mother was very hurt. Her mother was, her mother was a wonderful woman whom I came to hate with a passion, because she was always praying for me, <laughs> always praying for me, sticking her damn nose in my business, you know, <laughs> always praying for me. Oh, um, we come back and and we get, and and and, uh, and 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 to to to, to try to capsule this. Um, the disease of alcoholism, as we know, affects every aspect of our life. And I know that's true in Al-Anon also. It doesn't leave any stone unturned, you know. And so it began to affect me physically. You know, I was once in pretty good shape. And my last athletic um, um, event was playing softball for Monaghan's Bar and Grill, you know. And uh, I used to play third base. But then it got to the point where when you get a beer building, it's tough to bend over and catch the hard drive. So I would tend to keg while the other guys played. And in other words, I turned into a rum-dum at a very young age. And, uh, um, I, I, that's, and so it affected me physically. It affected me spiritually. I began to drift away from God. Not that I ever had, even in the seminary, a close contact with a higher power. I always believed there was a God. I always believed that, you know, he was taking care of me, but I was never sure whether he really liked me or not. I was positive that he hated me when I did the bad stuff. And I wasn't sure what it would take for him to forgive me for the bad stuff. And that sort of degraded our relationship. So it got to the point where I was praying less, asking less, only in desperation, you know. And it's tough to have any kind of a good relationship 
with a higher power in that kind of a situation. At least it was for me. So physically, mentally, mentally, you know, I got to the point where I eventually became what I called a walking fruitcake because I thought I was going crazy. We got married. We, we, we moved into a small apartment. My mother-in-law got some money from the family, lent it to us. We bought a two-family house as Bernadette shared. And um, well, we were getting $95 rent upstairs. The mortgage payment was only $75, and I couldn't keep up the payments. <laughs> You'll have to forgive me. When I laugh like this, you know, I'm not belittling any of this stuff. You know, the hurt, which was terrible, you know. Um, uh, you know, the, the things that I did to my wife and children and myself and the lost jobs. And, but, but it's not here anymore. It's gone. It's yesterday's newspaper. Today, the life I have is out of the comic books. I mean, it's out of Bill Faulkner. It's out of, you know, the dreams. It's, it's just incredible. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. So... Anybody that's new, you know, I'm, I'm not disparaging any of this with my laughter. Uh, when I, by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I could not laugh. I mean, like a friend of mine says, I had my head so far at my rear end, I needed a porthole in my stomach to look out, you know. <laughs> um, so we had to sell the two-family house to pay off the debts that I had piled up many of which Bernard didn't know about, bought a smaller house out in Long Island, which eventually the bank took away than she didn't know about. Um, it, it's not, Bernadette, believe me, is not a dumb woman <laughs> by any means. But I want to believe, and I know it's true, that Bernadette loved me a great deal. And I'll tell you in a minute why I know that. Uh, of course, I know it today, you know, and, and, and she knows how deeply I love her. Because love is a decision, you know, it's not necessarily those little childish goody feelings inside, you know, sometimes go away. But anyway, so anyway, by, uh, as I say, this disease affects every aspect of my life, and it began to affect every aspect of my life. Uh, it got involved in my job. I mean, I, I, I had a wonderful career uh, ahead of me. I went from a, uh, a police reporter to covering criminal courts. Uh, covering City Hall. Then he found that I could write. They brought me in on what they call nightside rewrite, where you wrote the stories for the first edition. This was, a, this was the largest evening newspaper in the world at that time. It was the flagship of the Hearst organization. And then they found that I could really write, and they put me on dayside rewrite, and, uh, where I was writing stories for seven running editions. And, uh, and then they found that I could really write, and I became a byline feature writer where I was traveling around the country covering big stories. I went down to Alabama, watched George Wallace keep the blacks from getting into the university. The last execution at Sing Sing Penitentiary, which you don't want to see. First shot, Sputnik shot up into space. I mean, wonderful, wonderful things. I mean, what a career I had going for me. But my alcoholism was now beginning to progress. Um, I was being, my life was becoming unmanageable. As Bernard said, I was coming home less. I was spending more time in saloons and, and all-night joints, um, hanging around with interesting but not you know, such you know, nice people. But uh, um, interesting, yeah, that's a good word for it. Uh, uh, everybody has a story, and everybody wanted me to tell their story, you know, and they were buying me drinks so I could tell their story. I don't even know who the hell they were, but, uh, and I never told their story. 
So anyway, um, and uh, so I, I, I by I, as I said, I was a, at the age of 22 years old. I was a byline feature writer for the largest newspaper in the world. And by the time I was 25 years old, I was the obituary editor for the largest newspaper in the world. And that's the job they say for the guys about to retire, because they kept firing me. I got fired five times, all directly as a result of my drinking. You know, absenteeism, stealing, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and so I quit, and I got a job working for a magazine, traveling all around the country, interviewing famous people. Not interviewing famous people, because a lot of the times I would miss. And uh, I wound up almost getting fired from that job because of a bad story I turned in and said I quit. I got a job working in the public relations business in New York, and that lasted six months. So I can trace the progressiveness of this disease in my job life. At home, we began to have children. As I say, then we began to lose homes, and we wound up living in my mother-in-law's basement uh, with four children. And, uh, and I hated that basement. Bernadette shared this morning that it was her mother's basement. She grew up playing there as a kid and all that kind of stuff, but I had drugged my family into a basement. And, you know, as drunk as I could get, that kind of stuff you can't forget. The guilt began to pile up, pile up, and used to torture me. I got to the point where I didn't know where I was going anymore. I didn't know why I was in so much trouble. I blamed God and other people and circumstances. I blamed getting married too young. Blame marrying an Italian against my mother's will, all kind of stuff, you know, nutty, nutty stuff, you know. But even in her family, they were catching on to me. I got the nickname Doozy Pots. That means you're nuts in Italian, you know. And, uh, um, but I was beginning to spin out of control. I was beginning to wake up in places that I didn't want to wake up in, in doorways, backs of, back, to my, back of my car, flea bag hotels. Um, Bernadette said that she was grateful for one thing, that I didn't do too much drinking at home. I would come home to sober up. And, um, and each time, it was, it was more and more difficult. Um, she told us, and, and she would ask me where I was. The truth of the matter is many times I didn't know. I would have pieces of where I was, you know. But I was here, and then all of a sudden I was here. And how I got from here to here, I didn't know. Um, and all those in Alcoholics Anonymous who have blackouts know exactly what I'm talking about, and those in Al-Anon who don't know, it's very difficult to understand, but that's what happens. Something happens to the... This is where the disease is, it's between the ears, and that alcohol affects the brain in such a way that you, you continue to operate, but you don't remember, and it happened to me more and more frequently, my blackouts. And so when she would ask me, uh, I'd make up stories, because she wanted an answer. You know, when you ask your spouse, well, where were you for two days or two weeks? You know, you want an answer. So I try to give her one. And she knew I was lying. You know, it's the only reason she knew I was lying is my lips were moving, you know. But uh, she told a story, one story where I come home. This, it's about 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, right? And, uh, and you started to scream at me, and I told you to stop because I had a heart attack that night, I told her, you know. She didn't believe me. I knew she didn't believe me. So I, I went back over to New York City, and I looked for a small hospital. I found one on one of the, 80, I think, 86th Street, and I walked into the emergency room, and there was a guy with a green suit on. looked like an intern or something, you know? And they asked him to do me a favor. I gave him a $20 bill, and I said, do me a favor and write me a note that I was here last night and had a heart attack. <laughs> Next thing I know, these two security guys are carrying me out of the place, you know? 
that's the kind of crazy stuff I was doing. But that was not, but that was not my insanity. My insanity was the fact that I was doing this stuff and then drinking again. That's the insanity of alcoholism. We think the insanity is the crazy stuff alcoholics do. No, that's not it at all. It's the fact that they do it, we do it, and then drink again. I mean, if I drank a glass of milk and went out and wrapped my car around a telephone pole, I'm going to swear off milk, right? But if I, have, if I get a load on and wrap my car around a telephone pole, man, I need a drink to get over this one, you know? And that's, that's alcoholism. It's an insidious, we, we, Karen and I were talking, it's an insidious, baffling, powerless disease. And I had no idea. I still had no idea that my drinking was the cause of all this stuff. One night, I was sitting in a saloon, and Third um, Avenue Saloon, I, I was now getting, you know, I used to drink in high-class saloons like Moochies, Tooties, Cuckoos. Um, Cuckoos was one of, it was a nice joint. It was the only place where there was a barmaid. I had ever met a barmaid with a beard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she keeps coming up in my mind. I don't know why, but it's, uh, uh, it was kind of sexy in a way. You, know? <laughs> you, ever kiss, you ever kiss a woman with a beard? Oh, I never did, by the way. Oh, no. <laughs> it reminds me of this story that I heard a guy tell one night, you know, because I, I so identified with it, uh, just quickly, that um, I used to think when I was drinking that I could think better when I had a few drinks. It made me sharper, you know. And um, it, the story is this drunk staggers into the saloon one night, you know, and sits on a stool, and he looks up, and there's this big bowl like this full of $20 bills, and he says to the bartender, what's, what's that for? He says, well, we're having a contest. Oh, well, what do you got to do? He says, well, you got to first put up 20 bucks. Then you got to do three things. He says, what's that? He says, you see that 400-pound guy sitting over in the corner? That's our bouncer. you got to walk over there with one shot. you got to knock him out. He says, I'm a little guy. I don't know if I could do that or not. He says, well, what else? He says, well, upstairs, we've got this, you know, kind of an elderly woman who hadn't had love in a long time, so you've got to make love to her until she screams with delight. He says, I don't know about that. But what else you got to do? He says, well, in the back room, we got a pit bull with a bad tooth. And he got to get a pliers and pull out his bad tooth. He says, that's kind of dangerous, you know. Well, give me another shot. So after about 15 doubles, the drunk takes off his jacket, throws his $20 bill on the bar, and says, I'm going to enter the contest. He staggers over. One shot, he knocks out the 400-pound bouncer. <clears throat> then he rolls up his sleeves. He says, now I'm going into the back room with the pit bulls. He goes out in the back room, and he hears screams and howls. He finally comes staggering out. He's sliced up. He's cutting. He's bloody. His clothes are half torn off. He says, all right now. Where's that old broad with the bad tooth? You know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's the way, you know, that's the way I was. I thought I could think better with a few drinks, you know. Um, anyway, anyway. So this night I'm sitting in the saloon and, and it occurs to me that the reason why I'm doing all this stuff, getting into so much trouble, is because I'm crazy. And for me, it made sense. It made absolute sense that the only reason I was doing this stuff and doing it over and over and over again is because I was crazy. I get a call. My wife found me somehow or other, you know, through some guys. And she told me our daughter had to be taken to the hospital and 
So I met her, and on the way home, we stopped off at this Chinese restaurant, and she says I ordered how many? Eight drinks, eight drinks. And, and she ordered some Chinese food. Now, I never minded at this point in my life when my drinking was totally out of control, when Bernadette would scream and holler about what I was doing. The thing I could not stand, and I was sharing this with Karen, is she'd catch me at a weak moment, and this, by the way, was a weak moment this night, and she'd look at me and she'd say, Bill, for God's sakes, do you have any idea what you're doing to yourself? Look at you. Why are you doing this to yourself? I wasn't looking at Bill. I wasn't looking at Bill. I was looking at everybody else. And, but this particular night, she touched something, and I broke down, and I said to her, I think I'm crazy, or I'm going crazy, and I need help. Now, you should never say that to a lady like Bernadette, because she's a woman of action. Next day, she's on the phone with our family doctor, you know, and she says, you know, my brother-in-law's friend, he's a, he knew who she was talking about. And he said to her, well, he's a drunken bum like his father, but if he needs help, and then he gave her the name of a psychiatrist. And the following Saturday afternoon, I found myself walking into the office of this very, very thin, skinny Dr. John Broncato, a psychiatrist in Queens. Now, when you're going to go to a place like that, you've got to get ready, right? <laughs> so I stopped off at Fred Funk's saloon and got ready. Right? Right, Dick? You've got to get those big moments in your life, see? So, and I remember sitting at Fred Funk's saloon, knocking down the shots and beers, and looking in the mirror and saying to myself, I'm going to tell him the truth. I'm going to tell him the absolute truth because I need help. So I wanted somebody to tell me how to get out of this mess, you know? And I'm going to tell him the truth. But it was, again, the truth as I understood it. <laughs> so anyway, I show up at his office. I sit down. He didn't, have a, he didn't have a couch, by the way. He didn't have one of these couches to lay down on. I was wondering how reputable he was, you know. <laughs> I thought every time you go to a shrink, you sit down, lay down on a couch, and you tell him about how your father beat you and all that kind of stuff. Instead, I sat in front of his desk. By this time, I weighed about 310 pounds, so I laid my belly on his desk. <laughs> he told me later on I looked like Porky Pig with a hangover. You know? <laughs> he had no bedside manner. <laughs> and he said to me, why are you here? And I said, because I think I'm crazy or I'm going crazy. He said, well, tell me why. And I began to share with him some of the things that I'm talking about. And suddenly he stops me. And he says, you drink, don't you? Well, of course he knew. I'm hell, I was breathing on him, you know. So, and, But I, the question threw me. It really did. I mean, why would he ask me that? What is that? What has that got to do with being nuts, you know? Talk to me about being nuts, you know. And uh, he said, do you drink a lot? I said, no, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't drink a lot. <laughs> he said, well, how much do you drink? I said, oh, I have a few beers once in a while. He said, oh, like on the weekends with the boys? I said, yeah. He said, well, aside from drinking beers on the weekends with the boys, do you ever drink beer on Mondays or Tuesdays? I said, yeah. He said, how about Wednesdays, Thursdays, or Fridays? <laughs> I said, yeah. And I'm still trying to figure this out, you know, and because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty sharp reporter, you know, and uh, <laughs> so I think, you know, the things that go on in a drunk's brain are incredible. I mean, you ought to get in there sometime. It's, it's really, it's like going to a fantastic movie, you know, it's, whoa, you know, and uh, so as this guy's talking, and then he says to me, aside from beer, do you ever drink any rye? 
I said, yeah. He said, you ever drink any scotch? I said, oh, yeah, I drink scotch. <laughs> How about gin or vodka? I said, yeah, I drink gin or vodka. <laughs> what he was trying to do was to paint a picture of a guy who was 27 years old, who drank every day in the week, anything he could get his hands on. <laughs> and then he said to me, Bill, do you know what an alcoholic is? Oh, so I straightened up because I knew the answer to this one. You know? <laughs> and I described the guy on a Bowery, right? Sitting, picking lint out of his navel, right? And, I just, and he looked at me and he said to me, Bill, you're right, but that's an alcoholic in the final stages of his disease. He said, he wasn't born there. Through the use and abuse of alcohol, that's where he wound up. He was probably born in a nice place like you, maybe even nicer. And then he began to talk to me about the disease of alcoholism. See, I didn't know this guy had been a colonel in the Air Force, knew all about alcoholism. God had sent me to the right person, you know, except I wasn't ready because... As he began to talk about the disease of alcoholism, I suddenly got the impression that he was insinuating that I was an alcoholic. <laughs> and I got teed off. I mean, I, all that wasted time in Fred Funk's saloon, you know, promising I'm going to tell him the truth, I tell him the truth, and he starts insulting me, you know? Anyway, when he got finished, he looked at me and he said, if you are an alcoholic, and only you can say so, he said, if you are an alcoholic, I can't help you. And in a way, my heart sank, because I, I was desperate. Where am I going to go, man? Where am I going to go? And he said, but I do know some people who can help you. And he wrote down the phone. He, back, he had a Rolodex back in those days. And he flipped it, and he wrote down the phone number of the Intergroup Office of Alcoholics Anonymous in Manhattan. And he said, if you really want help, go see these guys. They can help you. He said, but there's no sense coming back to see me, because it costs $25 a visit. This was in 1961. And he says, if you want to keep on drinking, you're going to need that money. <laughs> he was very straight. Very straight guy. So I stopped back at Fred Funk's now to figure out how to go home and tell my wife that a nut doctor thinks I'm an alcoholic. I mean, what big news to break on your poor wife, you know? <laughs> I told you, you look inside an alcoholic's brain, man. You and uh, so anyway, I remember she. I said he wants me to go to AA. And she she said, why, why do you want to go to American Airlines for? <laughs> I said, it's not American now. It's got something to do with drinking, you know. You learn how to drink or something like that. And so she said, okay, all right. If it's going to help in any way, you know. Here we are sitting on two cots behind an oil burner in a basement, you know. And <laughs> this stuff I remember. And it's, it, it's, I, I thank God so much that I'm able to laugh at it. And even Bernard can handle it pretty well today. You know? Anyway, I go to New York. I walk in the integral office, and there's this big guy named John with a big tweed jacket on, big handle. Remember those handlebar mustaches used to wax at the end, you know? He's got one of those things. And he sticks out this huge pour of a hand, and he says, My name is John. What's yours? I said, Bill. He said, You got a problem with alcohol? I said, No, I don't, John. But there's a psychiatrist back in Queens <laughs> that, that thinks I do, and he sent me over here to get some information. I'm here for some information. You know? <laughs> He said, would you like to go to an AA meeting? I said, is that how you get the information? Yes, how you get the information. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, fine. I figured, okay, maybe you make an appointment, like maybe a week from Wednesday or something like that. You know? <laughs> how about tonight, he says. Tonight? Oh, no, Saturday night. You know, I'm too busy tonight, John. <laughs> I have nothing to do, you know. Anyway, here's where God stepped in. I have a few God stories I want to leave you with today. And this is the first one. 
Um, John says to me, anytime you want to go to an AA meeting, call me up, and here's my card. He hands me his card. And you can't, you can't make this stuff even in movies, you know? And uh, I, I grabbed his card. I started to walk out. I just happened to glance at it. And it was John so-and-so, vice president of Chase Manhattan Bank. And I was running short, you know? <laughs> oh, man. So, oh. I said, geez, I ought to get to know John, you know? <laughs> We think we're the great manipulators, right? You know? So I walked back to the desk. I said, John, I think I can make it tonight, John. <laughs> and that's how God got me to my first AA meeting. Isn't that something? Yeah, that's, oh. So anyway, they told me at the, after the meeting, they said, where do you live? I said, Richmond Hill. And they said, oh, and they gave me a meeting book, and they circled meetings. And I said, that's your, your home group meets on Tuesdays and Saturdays. Well, I couldn't tell them I couldn't go to my home group. I might meet somebody I know. I don't want anybody to know I'm going to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, as low down as I was, you know, the alcoholic pride, you know. I never thought that these people used to see me on Saturday afternoons urinating on their hedges, you know. It's, it's, you know but uh, to go to an AA meeting. Well, so, so I went three miles out of my way. This was the first time around that Bernard had talked about. And I stayed around for about, took me about almost three months, right? I didn't drink that much. I didn't drink. I really... I wanted to give this thing a real shot, you know, and uh, so I approached it, you know, like a, <clears throat> you know, somebody who knew what the hell they were doing. I didn't know what the hell they was doing, and uh, so I listened to all, all the guys, and we had, there was one woman in the group, and, um, and every time they said something that hadn't happened to me, I'd say, ha ha, I'm not an alcoholic. Never did that. Never did that. Never used the word yet, because in Alcoholics Anonymous, you keep on drinking, all the yets happen. So after three months, I came home because I proved I wasn't an alcoholic, and I sat next to Bernadette on the cot behind the oil burner <laughs> and said, I'm glad I went to AA because I learned that if I ever kept drinking and where I was drinking, someday I could have a lot of trouble. Huh? And remember the exorcist where the head spins around? That's, <laughs> she says, what are you going to do now? I said, I'm just going to drink beer. <laughs> and I did. No, I did for about four or five hours. And, uh, Twelve months later, I was sitting on a window ledge, eighth floor of the Margarita Hotel in Manhattan. It was in an air shaft, you know, and they build the buildings in Manhattan so close, they have air shafts, you know. And I was on a window ledge ready to jump. Because at 28 years old, I had nothing else left to live for. I had two district attorneys looking for me on bad check charges. I, um, I had seven judgments, we had seven judgments against us. I owed $56,000. I owed seventeen grand to one loan shark. A guy named Richie Baldino. Isn't that a great name for a loan shark? And um, so it was over, so I decided I was going to jump. I looked down over the air shaft, and there were a lot of telephone lines crisscrossing, you know? And I couldn't find a clear spot. You know? I, I thought if I jumped, I might have hit a wire on the way down and hurt myself, you know? <laughs> I always love to tell that story because it reminds me not only of myself but of so many other stories I've heard in AA that alcoholics don't want to die, they just don't know how to live. I didn't know how to live. Through the grace of God, I was given another chance. A guy called me up, called my mother-in-law's phone, I answered it. My Bernard, Bernard had set all this up. And he asked me if I wanted to give AA another try, and through the grace of God, I said yes. 
And on April 8, 1962, Vinny, Johnny, Jimmy Began came around and picked me up and brought me back to the Woodhaven Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And through the grace of God, I haven't found it necessary to take another drink. But I have to tell you, um, the, those that don't know that much about the disease of alcoholism, I wanted to drink more than I wanted to breathe. I wanted to get out of what I was in. I could not stand reality for a moment. It was too painful. I had to get out. And, um, but Benny, a guy named Benny Michelson, a Jewish jeweler from Brooklyn, grabbed me, pulled me aside, and he said, Bill, look, he said, if you don't drink, you have a chance. And that's, well, I mean, they were like magic words. Because I remember sitting on that window ledge, you know, not thinking I had a chance. And he said, if you don't drink, you got a chance. But he says, you cannot stay the way you are and expect to stay sober and have a new life. You've got to change. And I'll show you how. And Benny became my sponsor. I did everything Benny suggested that I do. Because I knew he loved me. I don't know why, but I just knew it. He had, I, had, I had never felt that kind of warmth since I had met Bernadette. And then later on, when Mom and I reconciliated. But anyway, Benny did. He showed me a new way of life. He brought me into the kitchen. Back in those days, we used to drink coffee out of mugs. So you had to wash the mugs after the meeting. So he got my, put my hands in hot, soapy water, washing mugs, ashtrays. And something began to happen to me, like that night in, in the Edison Bar and Grill when those guys were passing me down the bar. And I began to feel a change come over me. Through the, through the magic elixir of alcohol. And in the kitchen of the Woodhaven group, with my hands in this hoppy, hot, soapy water, I felt the change come over me through the miraculous powers of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't mean to be overdramatic, but that's what happened to me. And um, I felt so safe, so loved, so secure. I didn't want to leave. But one day at a time, things began to work out. Things that I never thought could work out the debts, the judgments, the DAs. A woman who I now thought hated my guts because I was about to walk out of the house the night that this guy, she got him to call. And, and, um, and she asked me, she begged me to give AA another try. A woman that hates you don't ask you to do that. A woman that loves you asks you to do that. Anyway, so my life began to change. And it's been changing ever since. The recovery of from alcoholism and, and Alcoholics Anonymous is, is absolutely incredible. Um, what happens to us is, is beyond, beyond one's imagination. And it's happened in my life. It's happened in the lives of so many alcoholics that you and I know. Um, as Bernadette shared, we moved to Nashville, Tennessee, because I had a tough time getting a good job in New York. I had a bad reputation in my business, in the communications business. So I got a job working for a guy named Guilford Dudley, Jr. in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, life and casualty insurance company. I was his PR man. And we rebuilt our lives, right, sweetheart? And Bernadette was active in Al-Anon. I was active in AA. And those two programs built a bridge over which we could walk back together again. And sometimes it's, you know, you've got to keep repairing the bridge, you know. But uh, it still works. And um, anyway, then we began to have more children, you know. We had, at that time, we had five, and 
we wound up with nine. Um, because as they usually say in AA meetings, a lot of things begin to work again when you sober up. Anyway, but that's... Uh, um, and then I knew with a, with a large family, you know, uh, there was going to be, you know, educations and all that kind of stuff. So I was offered a terrific job in Cleveland. And we moved there for... I lived there for two, a little over two years and Bernard lived there for a year. Then we came back to New York. And um, I'll, I'm going to wrap this up now with two last God stories. Um... I thought I was very active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was still making a lot of meetings, but um, um, I started a public relations company in New York and became very successful at that. <clears throat> and then um, I teamed up with three other fellows who wanted a, a, an, an investment banker who put up all the money. Uh, and these three fellows wanted to start a motion picture talent management and production company, and they wanted me on board to handle a lot of the promotion and that stuff. So anyway, the four of us got together and we formed a company called Artist Entertainment Complex, which was an independent movie production company, and we began to make movies. Um, and the first movie we made, some of you may have seen years ago, called Kansas City Bomber, which starred Raquel Welch as a roller derby queen. And the uh, reason it was so wonderful is that on a set, watching Raquel Welch back then skate around the rink in these black, tight-fitting leather pants was like having a spiritual experience. It's a, um, and, then, and, then, and then a friend of mine, Peter Moss, some of you may have read some of his books. He's a wonderful writer. And he and I had covered the Knapp Commission in New York, uh, which was an investigation of dirty cops. And uh, he got uh, Frank Serbico's rights, and he wrote a book. And uh, so we made a deal with Peter, and uh, we, uh, uh, we made a movie called Serbico with Al Pacino. And then that went so well, we made another movie with Al Pacino, which, which I, you know, we, we argued about it, but uh, it turned out all right. It was called Dog Day Afternoon. It was about a, uh, oh, thank you. It was about a, uh, and, and, and this is, this is, you know, I, I share this stuff because uh, this is all uh, what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a friend of mine who I sponsor uh, who uh, has his own garage, he, always, he was a great auto mechanic, but he always dreamed of someday having his own garage. He's now got a very successful garage. Uh, another fellow I know has got a wonderful, wonderful computer consulting business. Um, I mean, these things, you know, if God wants them for us and we're and, and Alcoholics Anonymous and, we, and we're sober and able to handle them, he'll give them to us, and, they, and, and it's just wonderful what happens to people's lives. And this is what began to happen to me. Uh, and then I decided, by this time, I was such a big shot, and uh, we were living in this 22-room house. By the way, Linda, we had nine bathrooms. You know? Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> our neighbors used to come over and take a leak. Uh, no, I didn't mean that. And, and, uh, uh, anyway, it was just it was a wonderful place to raise the kids. You know, nine kids, nine bathrooms. And, but I you know, missed the big shot. Now I decided what I wanted to do. Because <clears throat> I wanted to make a movie about Alcoholics Anonymous and save the world. I mean, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob did their thing, which is wonderful, but now it's time for me to take over, see, and do, and it's sort of like multiply their things, you know, uh, and um, I say that because I went into this thing without realizing what a huge ego I had now had. I was still going to AA meetings, but I was now stopping by just to let you know I was still around, and uh, I was too, kind of too busy to be actually working the steps and 12-stepping and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, 
as soon as I made this movie, you would know what kind of a big AA guy I really was because, you know, there'd be about 20,000 people coming in, you know, just seeing my movie. Anyway, but my partner said, you want to make a movie about wine? <laughs> I said, drinking their martinis. So uh, we, were, we were departing company anyway because we were so successful. I mean, you know, sometimes money breaks partnerships up, and it did in this case. So I started my own business, and I continued trying to make it until I almost went busted. And uh, if anybody wants to get arrested, that story I'll tell you later. What happened is um, things got very, very bad, and because um, I was now using my own money developing this project, I, um, I, I finally got... Uh, um, uh, Peter, um, what's his name out of, he was running, kind of running Paramount at the time, interested in doing the movie. Um, as Bernadette shared, by this time, um, Lois Wilson and Bernadette and I were, had become very, very close, and, uh, and Lois had given me permission to do this, and I spent many hours with her tape recording her reminiscences, and, and I have all of that. And, uh, um, but I, so she said to me just two things. She said, number one, please, Bill, tell the truth of the story. And secondly, don't let anybody know in the movie that I'm co-founder of Al-Anon because I, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to protect my anonymity. So I said, fine. So when I went out to Paramount, Peter, I left the, I left the uh, screenplay with him, and um, uh, he said, come back next Monday, and we'll talk about it. So he read it over the weekend, come back, and he said, I really want to make this movie. He said, I think it's a great drunk story. He said, we'll have this Bill Wilson running up and down hotel rooms. We'll have him screwing all the good-looking blondes. I mean, well, you may really turn this into something really exciting. And I said, did you read my script? He said, yeah. I said, well, Peter, it's a spiritual movie. He said, well, I don't make spiritual movies. They suck, you know. So, uh, so I put the script back under my arm and come back to New York because as much as I wanted to do it, I know I couldn't. I could not because I'd only get drunk doing it, you know. So um, it sat under my arm for quite a while until um, um, I decided, and I'll close for quickly now, um, I had to get back deeply involved in Alcoholics Anonymous to handle all of this, so I got involved in a, in a rehab in Westchester called the Casa Serena, and I began to uh, sponsor the cook, a guy named Ed. And on his first anniversary, uh, I spoke for Ed's first anniversary, and then he shared with me, he said to me, Bill, he said, uh, I'm going to follow your advice. I finally know what I'm going to do when I get out of here. You said I shouldn't be a cook forever, so I know I'm going to become a, become a movie star. So I said, that's very good, Ed. You know, you know Ed was not a bad-looking guy. I mean, if you, he had a couple of cuts over his eye and his nose a little bent, and, and he had a cauliflower ear, but he was not a bad-looking guy, you know. So I said, Ed, when you get out to Hollywood, make sure you make an AA meeting and get yourself established. And he said, don't worry, I'll do that. And he said, by the way, I had shared the script with Ed. He's going to take your script with me just in case I bump into somebody that wants to do your movie. I said, oh, sure. No, why not? I mean, a cook from the Casa Serena is going to go to Hollywood to become a movie star and bump into a producer who's going to make my movie. It happens every day, you know. <laughs> so um, off goes Ed. And now Vernon and I are sitting home one night. We're watching TV, and Archie Bunker's house gets burglarized. And two cops come to investigate. One of the cops is Ed. <laughs> I say, hey, Bernadette, there's Ed. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Another night, we're watching um, Sanford and Sons, you know, the junk show? And the junkyard is on fire. And the firemen rush in to put the fire out. You know who's the head of the fire brigade? Ed. <laughs> this guy's going around, knocking on producers' doors, finding what they're doing, and auditioning and getting these 
bit parts. You know, he's working his way up, you know. Then I get a call one day from Ed, and he's very angry, and he says, somebody out here is trying to steal your movie. I said, what are you talking about? He says, somebody out here wants to make a movie about Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's your movie. I said, anybody can make a movie about Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, yeah, but you got permission. Blah, 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 blah. I said, calm down. Anybody can do that. He said, well, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. So he does. He finds out that there's a guy named James Garner, the actor, and a guy named Peter Duchot, a producer, are trying to make a movie about AA. And they've gone through five writers, and they can't come up with a good script. They're doing this for Hallmark Hall of Fame. I had written my script as a major feature movie. So anyway, uh, he, he befriends Mary Ann, who's James Garner's secretary, and he gives her the, my script when he finds out they need, they need a script. Mary Ann takes it home, reads it, and she calls up Jim, and she says, Con- Jim Garner, she says, congratulations, this new script you got is wonderful. When are you going to start shooting? And Jim says, what are you talking about, Mary Ann? He says, well, the script that I, did, haven't you read this yet? She sends it over to Jim. He reads it. He likes it. And he calls up Peter, his partner, to congratulate him on hiring Bill Borchardt to write a new script. And Peter DeShaw says, what the hell are you talking about? I never heard of the guy, you know. And Jim says, well, call him up and let's get started. So Bernard and I are sitting in Ryan, New York in our home and Saturday afternoon. We just finished our dinner, our lunch, and the phone rings and it's Peter DeShaw calling me up saying, look it, somehow or other we got your script. I'm in trouble because I've read it without your permission. But you wrote it as a feature. Would you be interested in rewriting it for Hallmark Hall of Fame as a two-hour television movie. I said, Peter, I'm kind of busy right now. (laughs) But if you give me about five minutes, I'd love to do it. (laughs) He said, I'll meet you at the Waldorf next Wednesday. Can you make it? I said, I'll be there ahead of you. So that's how my name is Bill W. came to be, if anybody had ever seen seen that movie. When I tried to do it to save the world, God said, if I let you do that, man, you're probably going to get drunk. I'm, this, you know, not yet. It wasn't God's time. When I got back active in Alcoholics Anonymous and God felt I was able to handle whatever came from that, he said, okay, let's go. So he got a cook from Cassis Arena <laughs> to decide he wanted to become a movie star. Sends him out to Hollywood <laughs> with my script under his arm. Finds out that Garner and Deschel want to make a movie about Bill W. He gives him my script, and the movie gets made. I had nothing to do with it. I wrote it. God gave me the talent to put words on paper, but he did the rest. And isn't that how he works in our lives? We want something, and we get it, maybe. But if we get it, we get it when God wants to give it to us. When he, feels, when he felt I was able to handle it, he gave it to me. My final God story is this, and I know I'm making you late for your meeting, but um, I told you about my mother-in-law, whom I came to hate with a passion, because she was always praying for me. Every time I had to go down to her basement, I had to pass by her, her dining room. You know, you had to go in, pass the dining room, then go down to the basement. She was always sitting on a corner of that dining room table praying. No matter what time I came home, no matter what day, what time of day... Mama was there praying. Now, not only was she praying, I mean, she was a prayer. She had two stacks of, ro- of holy cards, two sets of rosary beads, the New Testament, the Old Testament, and the lives of the saints. Okay? And I always knew she was praying for me, and every once in a while, depending on how drunk I was, I would stand there and I would scream at her, stay out of my life, I don't need you. Mama wouldn't budge. 
She kept praying, praying. She saw what my disease was doing to her daughter and her grandchildren and never said a word to me. Never said a word to me. Fast forward to Nashville, Tennessee. I think it was 1963, 64. We were having another child. And Mama came down to help Bernadette. In fact, it was her first airplane trip. And um, one night, Bernadette and the children were in bed, and Mama was passing by the den where I was sitting, and she was going into the dining room to do some praying. And I was in a den doing some writing, and she came in, and she sat down on the couch next to me. And I always love to close with this story because this is Alcoholics Anonymous and how sometimes we don't recognize in an AA what's happening to us, but other people do. And Mama sat next to me, and Bernard said she was only, you know, five foot tall. And she sat, and, and she looked up at me, and she says, you know, Bill, she says, all of my life, and Mama was then about 72, 73, all of my life she said, I've read the New Testament and all the miracles that Jesus did, and then I read the lives of the saints and all the miracles that they did. And she said, I've often wondered what it would be like to see a real miracle. And then she put her hand on my shoulder. And she said, now I have. And I suddenly recognized what had happened to me. And that's what happens to us in Alcoholics Anonymous. The miracle that takes place in our lives. And to be given the privilege of sharing that today is overwhelming. So thank you very much. Thank you.